Okay, so this is part two of our current event and weekly Bible study for 3.30.08. We're going to continue with our look at C.S. Lewis. This next part we're going to be um, looking at is the occult fantasy part of some of his works. And this section has been excerpted from the 1985 Media Spotlight special report on C.S. Lewis, The Man and His Myths. In spite of what many believe to be brilliant exegesis on Christian apologetics, there appears to have been in C.S. Lewis a seemingly irresistible attraction to the shadow world of the occult fantasy, a mingling of darkness with light in writings apart from his apologetics. Now, this is all through his writings, and now in today's day and age we have Harry Potter, which is of the same theme, just a little more overt. As a child, Lewis's fertile imagination was greatly influenced by fantasy and fairy tales told to him by his mother. Now these are things that we shouldn't be implanting into our child's heads. They're demonic. Many of them are outright lies. Why are you wanting to teach your kids these, these things? Okay, but that's what, how he was brought up. His brilliant mind was quick to seize upon these experiences, and his favorite pastime became drawing what he later called the anthropomorphized beasts of nursery literature. He and his brother referred to them as dressed animals. Now you can see why in his writings that he believed that man was nothing more than an evolved animal. Okay, that's what he, we've already quoted these verses straight from his writings. The, he portrayed animals as basically these human-like beings, sometimes Christ-like beings. Okay, so this is why I believe they were so elevated. Lewis's early favorite literature included E. Nibbet's trilogy, Five Children and It, The Phoenix and the Wishing Carpet and the Amulet, all occult fantasies. Even after having been a professing Christian for 25 years, he maintained, I can still read them with delight. So much was Lewis's life steeped in the fantasy that he wrote, this is unbelievable, this is a quote, the central story of my life is about nothing else. This is this fantasy world that he lived in. So the central story of my life is about nothing else? What about Christ Jesus? What about the Bible? What about... No, no. It was about this, basically, this occult fantasy. From Nesbitt and Gulliver, he advanced to Longfellow's saga of King Olaf and fell in love with the magic and pagan myths of Norse legend. Well, so did Adolf Hitler. So, like, these, these, uh, these Norse pagan legends, these are some evil, purely evil, fictional, well, based on pagan mythology, probably a lot of it did happen. From a, from a witchcraft standpoint, these talk about shape-shifting, they glorify witchcraft, you know, and this is what, C.S. Lewis cut his teeth on. This is what his life, the central story of his life was about nothing else. That's his own quote. By the age of 12, there had grown in Lewis's mind an intense relationship with the world of fantasy and elves. Now, I believe what we're in reference to here is the Keebler elves, the guys that make the crackers. No, just kidding, sorry. Anyway, I fell deeply under the... This is a quote from him. He said, I fell deeply under the spell of the dwarfs. The old, bright-hooded, snowy-bearded dwarfs we had in those days before Arthur Rackman 
sublimed or Walt Disney vulgarized. Oh, Walt Disney vulgarized the dwarfs and the in the seven dwarfs. I guess. How dare him? He probably would defend the the the, the uh, dwarfs more than he would the word of God. Obviously, he would any day. So he says, you know, before this, the Earthmen. This is from Lewis, quote, I visualized them, these dwarfs, so intensely that I came to the very frontiers of hallucination. Once walking in the garden, I was for a second not quite sure that a little man had not run past me into the shrubbery. I was faintly alarmed. It's from page 55. Yeah, it's not, it's not like he was. It's not like he was doing hallucinogenics. He visualized dwarfs so intensely that he came to the frontiers of hallucination? Oh yeah, that happened to me last week. You know, I can really relate to him here. No, I, 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 I mean, come on. This is from his own writings. Although one would expect childhood fantasies to subside after a time, in Lewis's case, they became more of a delight as he grew older. So his whole life was based around occult lives. That was the central theme of his life. And again, are you telling me that it would be possible for you as a Christian to embrace his writings and not be influenced by the same spirits that guided him? This is dangerous. This isn't some light little issue. This is a guy that has influenced millions and millions and millions of people. Probably is responsible for untold millions of people in hell. When Lewis, when Lewis was sent to a boarding school in Hertfordshire, England, his first impression was one of revulsion toward the unpleasant urban environment compared to his Irish countryside. He immediately hated England. Of the same time, he writes, he writes, I also developed a great taste for all fiction I could get about the ancient world. Quio vadis. Darkness and Dawn, The Gladiators, Ben-Hur, the attraction, as I now see, was erotic. And erotic in a rather morbid way. The interest when the fit was upon me was ravenous, like a lust. End of quote. His interest in these fictional books about the ancient world was erotic in a rather morbid way? That's not even appropriate to even say anything more about. The interest when the fit was upon me was ravenous like a lust? That's from page 35 of the thing I just referenced earlier. That How could a Christian write this way? How could a born-again Christian say this? How sick does that sound? That's how dark this man's mind was. After advancing to preparatory school at Wyvern, Lewis gradually ceased to be a Christian. He became interested in the occult and embraced an attitude of pessimism about what he considered a faulty world. His taste for the occult was nurtured and grew as he became enthralled with what Wagnerian operas and the Norse sagas derived from Celtic mythology. And again, so did Hitler. This sounds a lot like Hitler's early years to me. And later. 
Because he was. He was obsessed with the Norse mythology. This is where we get the whole thing about the Aryan fifth root race from. From Norse mythology. At the age of 27, having been elected fellow and tutor in the English language and literature at Magdalene College, C.S. Lewis met John Ronald Rule, Tolkien, at a meeting of the English faculty at Menton College. That was in 1926, 511. J.R.R. Tolkien, though wary of Lewis at first, enrolled him in the Coalbiters Club, which was founded by Tolkien for the study and propagation of Norse mythology. <laughs> hey, you know, where do I sign up? This is the man that all these people are revering. And he's buddies with Tolkien, who's another devil, who took him under his wing in this club called the Coalbiters, Whose, whose purpose of this club was the study and propagation of Norse mythology? This was the same time Hitler was coming to power. I bet you they thought Hitler was a pretty cool guy, if the truth be known. Hitler was studying the same things they were. And so were a lot of other Aryan Germans. It's great company, you know, to be around. The two became close friends, sharing their common interest in occult fantasy. Tolkien argued that there is an inherent truth in mythology. All pagan religions point in the direction of God. Though this faulty through this faulty argument, Lewis reasoned that the story of Christ to be a true myth. Okay. A myth such as the same, much the same as others, but a myth that really happened. Well, that sounds like a really strong biblical stance to me. <clears throat> it was during their long association that both Lewis and Tolkien developed their most prestigious sword and sorcery material. Quote, sword and sorcery material. Sorcery? Like witchcraft? Yeah, you heard me right. Tolkien, of course, became well known for his mythological tale, The Hobbit, and his later work, The Lord of the Rings, released as three volumes. The Fellowship of the Ring, The Two Towers, The Return of the King. Lewis turned to expounding intermittently on Christian apologetics and to writing fantasy. Perhaps the best known fantasy from Lewis's pen is the seven volume Chronicles of Narnia. We're going to talk more about this later. In, in it, some see a parallel to the warfare between God and Satan. Many of Lewis's fantasies see the great lion, Ajan, as Christ. Basically, Jesus Christ. Well, actually, this would be more the New Age Christ, really, if the truth be known. This became Aslan, who lays down his life to free the, free the children from the curse of the evil witch, believed to be represented by Satan. He possesses a knowledge of greater magic. Oh, this lion called Aslan, who is the Christ, has greater magic. Oh, like white and black witchcraft? Yeah, exactly. So he has a knowledge of greater magic than that of the witch. A magic that brings him back to life and destroys the witch's power. Sounds like the Wizard of Oz. The good witch. The wicked witch, witch of the West. This is the whole lie of the coming New World Order, One World Religion of witchcraft under the New Age. White and black witchcraft. This is what this, we were getting prepared for this way back then. This is what Harry Potter propagates. Good and bad witches. It's all an abomination to God. It is argued that in presenting a blend of fantasy with an analogy to Christian truth, 
Lewis hoped to encourage his readers to search out truth further. This, however, was not Lewis's intention in writing his fantasies. Rather, he was genuinely enamored with mythology and believed that the that any story he wrote to take precedence over any preconceived moral idea. In Lewis's own words, there's another quote from good old C.S. Lewis. This was a quote in Of Other Worlds, page 36. Some people seem to think that I began by asking myself, this is about writing his stories, some people seem to think that I began by asking myself, how could I say something about Christianity to children? And he's admitting here that this is these books primarily a lot are geared toward children. <clears throat> and then he goes on to say, then fixed on a fairy tale as an instrument. So in other words, you know, did he say something about Christianity by fixing on a fairy tale as an instrument? And then he goes on to say, then collected information about child psychology and decided what age group I'd write for. And then I drew up a list of basic Christian truths, hammered out all the allegories to embody them. This is pure moonshine, he says. I couldn't write that way at all. Everything began with images. A fawn carrying an umbrella. The, the fawn he's in reference to here is Pan. Okay, the god of sexual lust. A fawn carrying an umbrella, a queen on a sledge, a magnificent lion. At first there wasn't anything Christian about them. Well, there never has been. He goes on to say that element pushed itself of its own accord. This man is a out-out, out-and-out devil from the pit of hell. So he, he admits that these stories... He didn't start out, there was no Christian theme, it just, they worked themselves out this way of their own accord. He had no, this wasn't, this wasn't about drawing people to Christ, and getting people saved, and converted, and getting them in the sound fundamentals of the faith. This was anything but that. This was, a, this was the, the fruit of his own demon-possessed, mythologically-obsessed, pagan mind influenced by the devil that this was the fruit of that his writings were so we see that narnia was not by design a christian allegory yet even if christian allegory or analogy was lewis's intention the fact is that the truth of god when couched in terms less than accurate is a leavened lie A leavened lie. You cannot combine a little bit of supposed biblical truth with a whole bunch of lies and leaven and expect to have a good result. A little leaven, leaven at the whole lump. Aside from the fact that when presented as a myth, the truth may be, may be mistaken as a myth as well. Think about that. No clear understanding can be forthcoming without prior knowledge of the truth. In which case, the allegory or the analogy is useless. In any case, it is dangerous to present evil as good. Well, the Bible says in Proverbs 17, verse 13, um, Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. Actually, no, that's Isaiah. Isaiah uh, Proverbs 17, 13 says, Woe unto them that reward evil for good and good for evil. For evil shall not depart from their house. Now, that's kind of what C.S. Lewis was doing. He was rewarding you evil for good. I mean, <laughs> you pay your hard money to get his book and here, here he rewards you evil. That's true. He did, if you think about it. 
In any case, it is dangerous to present evil as good, and magic is synonymous with the miracle-working power of the Holy Spirit. Many of Lewis's characters in his fantasies, depicted as good, are in reality associated with witchcraft, pagan mythology, and North, Norse mysteries. They are, in fact, gods of, the gods of nature. And magic in these stories is either used for good or evil purposes, depending upon the source of that magic. One of the more pronounced confusions of good and evil is the quote, till we have faces work by Lewis retelling of the Greek myth of Cupid and Psyche, oh, one of my favorite. Written just a few years before his death, in this work, several ungodly concepts are espoused as valid truths. One such is a strong hint at the universalist doctrine. This is from the book uh, that we just mentioned, Till We Have Faces, page 300-301. It says, quote, we're all Tims, whatever that means, and parts of one whole. Hence, of each other, men and gods flow in and out until we mingle. Oh, okay, that sounds about as pantheistic as you could possibly be. God and everything, you know? So, too, one might also think Lewis... Lewis looked upon suicide as an acceptable act also. On page 17 of the same book we just read, he says, Have I not told you often that to depart from life of a man's own will, when there is good reason, is one of the things that is accorded to nature? So if you want to kill yourself as long as there's a good reason, hey, do it. It's accorded to you by nature. Of course, none of this, again, can he back up in the scripture, but, you know, hey. Lewis was necessarily... Was Lewis necessarily aware of his error? He apparently saw no incompatibility between his professed faith and his occult fantasy. I guarantee you why is because he was not a Bible believer. He was not a Bible follower. He was a Bible questioner. He didn't read the Bible. He wasn't born again. If he was, he couldn't have done this. He apparently saw no incompatibility between his professed faith and occult fantasy. His imagination welded upon fantasy in preference to what he considered a faulty reality, set the theme for his writings, and became the basis for confusion by readers who perceived them as a Christian allegory. While millions accept Lewis's apologetics as evidence of a genuine faith, they forget that he was a fallible man whose writings in total, in total must be subjected to by testing of God's word. See, that's what we're doing here today. We're testing Lewis's own writings, own speech, by, his, by the word of God. And it doesn't hold up, as you see. We see in Christian bookstores, Lewis's treatise on Christian thought alongside his occult fantasies. It has apparently escaped notice that Lewis is highly respected among those in occultism. In fact, there has developed a cult of sorts which venerates the fantasies of Lewis along with those of other writers who do not claim to be Christians. Evidence of this is the fact that Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia is listed among other occult writings as recommended inspirational reading by the makers of the demonically inspired oriented game Dungeons and Dragons. They recommend you read Chronicles of Narnia before you become a dungeon master on Dungeons and Dragons. That's just one of the many occult groups. Oh, but I'm the bad guy for, for talking about C.S. Lewis. I'm causing division among the brethren. Oh, I'm sure I'll hear that on that. You know. I already quoted the verses to refute that. 
We're supposed to mark these people. This man was a heretic. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's all he was. Plain and simple. A prime example of how a fantasy novelist is able to weave truth and untruth and fact and fable, thus distorting the word of God, is found in C.S. Lewis's book, The Last Battle of the Chronicles of Narnia. Series. Young people who read this book are falsely led to believe that all sin and evil that a person has committed in serving Satan can in the end be counted as service rendered to God. Well, where does it say that? Well, we're going to look at that in a second. Let's look at it right now. This is from that book, The Last Battle of the Chronicles of Narnia series. Here's a quote from it. He says, Then I fell at his feet and thought, Surely this is the hour of death. For the lion... This is the, the Christ figure, who is worthy of all honor, again, the Christ figure, <clears throat> will know that I have served Tosh. Okay, so let me just read this again. Then I fell at his feet and thought, he fell at the lion's feet and thought, surely this is the hour of my death, for the lion who is worthy of all honor will know that I have served Tosh, who is supposedly the Narnian representation of Satan. Then he says, all my days... I have served Tash, and not him, the lion, who is the Christ. But the glorious one bent down his golden head, the lion, and said, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine, but I serve Tash, or Satan. And then he, the lion, answered and said, Child, all the service thou hast done unto Tash, I account as service done unto me. End of quote. Is that a lie from the pit of hell? I would say, affirmative on that one, 100%. All the service that is done to the devil is accounted service done unto Christ? Where's that in the Bible? Never, anywhere in the Bible is that said. But that's what the Chronicles of Narnia are teaching. Lewis is teaching a damnable false doctrine here, and is even... And it is even more wicked in that it is intended for the indoctrination of children. First, according to Lewis, those who sincerely serve the devil, Tash, are actually serving God, or Ajlon, and will eventually be accepted by God. That is, heresy of, that is the heresy of universalism, believing that God will somehow receive unbelievers and followers of false religions into heaven, even though they do not know Jesus Christ in this life. Furthermore, Lewis is teaching that salvation can be achieved by works and religious seeking, and that and that is another false gospel that is cursed of cursed by God in the book of Galatians. Here's another article uh, entitled C.S. Lewis Exposed. J.K. Rowling, author of the demonic Harry Potter series, has said that C.S. Lewis is one of her favorite two authors. J.K. Rowling. Harry Potter's. That's how much it influenced her. So see, now you have this corrupt seed that Lewis has planted with all of his demonic writings. And look at the seed. When a seed germinates and comes and grows and grows into a great tree, if that tree is an evil tree, it'll bear evil fruit. Well, this is one of his followers, J.K. Rowling. He's one of her favorite two authors. So what a legacy he has left. Good old C.S. Lewis. Look, who's he, look who he has inspired. 
Could Rowling, could J.K. Rowling say this about Paul or any of the apostles? Or Jesus Christ? No. No, but it was easy for her to say it about C.S. Lewis. That goes to show you how far from biblical standards that this man strayed. This is um, from Friday Church News Notes, March 25th, 05. <clears throat> Seeking to cash in on the current popularity of religious-themed movies, the Walt Disney Corporation, who's wicked and evil to the core, if you have any doubts on that, just email me and I'll get you the... I need to do a teaching on Walt Disney, too, I think. I really do, because th- there, there's so much stuff on Walt Disney, I, I, I can't even... I don't know how many parts it would be. Um, seeking to cash in on current popularity of religious-themed movies, the Walt Disney Corporation is creating a series of films adapted from C.S. Lewis, Chronicles of Narnia. The first due for release is The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Lewis believed in prayers for the dead, purgatory, confessed sins to priests. He denied the total depravity of man and the substitutionary atonement of Christ. He believed in theistic evolution and rejected the Bible as the infallible word of God. He taught that hell is a state of mind. The Narnia fables are filled with heresy, promoting the concept of white and good witches, and even teaching universalism. In the chapter, further up and further in from the last battle, an individual is accepted by Aslan the lion, who is the mythical Christ figure, even though he served in Aslan's arch enemy, Tash, all his life. When the individual expresses his amazement as being accepted, Ajlan says, Therefore, if any man swear by Tash... Now, this is another confirmation of that last quote. Ajlan, this Christ line figure, says, If any man swear by Tash, or Satan, and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he is truly sworn. So, in other words, you make, you make a pledge to the devil, an oath to the devil, a deal with the devil... And it's really not the devil you made a deal with. It's just, it's Christ. Though he knew it not, and it is I who reward him. So you can make a deal with the devil and still be rewarded. I don't know, you know, what more absolute, total, unbiblical, rank, heresy, and apostasy this devil could spew forth. This is a lie of the devil and could be responsible for sending, well, it is responsible for sending, I would venture to say, millions of souls to hell. And those souls are still going. Because you've got the influence of this man on people like J.K. Rowling, who are indoctrinating all the kiddies into absolute high-level witchcraft. The witchcraft that they go into in the Harry Potter books is high-level witchcraft according to people that have been involved in the occult and have come out. Or, sometimes they're involved in the cult and are still there. There's some things that they won't even do in those J.K. Rowling books. People that are involved in witchcraft. Lewis is teaching (coughs) false doctrines here again. Uh, Let's see. When when I interviewed the head of the New Testament Department of Sempore University, founded by William Carey in India long ago, he told me the same thing. I asked him whether Hindus will be accepted by God if they are sincere in their religion. He replied, certainly. William Carey in India. He started the New Testament Department of Semapore University. He told me, I asked him whether the Hindus will be accepted by God if they are sincere in their religion. He replied, certainly. Of course. Yeah. 
but Doug just informed me that this this man, this William Carey, um, uh, is started the modern day mission movement and was a hero to very many people. I didn't even know about him. Uh, I um, and but he's saying that, like I said, this leaven has so permeated through modern day Christianity. And it is so vast. And there's very few people talking about it at all. Because, why? Because they're part of the problem. They're part of the brainwashing. They have departed from the ways of God. They have departed mainly from the Word of God. Does it mean I think I'm better? No. But this is the reason I came out from these modern day denominational things because I just saw this everywhere no matter where I went I couldn't get away from it wherefore come out from among them and be not partakers of their plagues you know we, we, we're supposed to do this don't go to a church just for the sake of going to a church if it's apostate Read your Bible and do what you can do at home. Play, play the King James Bible. Pray. If there's nobody in your area, I'm sorry, it may come down to that. Particularly in America, where there's a church on almost every corner. But unfortunately, 99.99% of them are apostate on some level. Does that mean I think I've got everything figured out and I'm the purveyor of all knowledge? No, it doesn't. I learn, I learn things every day still. But you need to humble yourself before God because the Bible says to this man will I look to of him that is a con contrite and a humble spirit and tremble at my word, Isaiah 66. Be, a, be of a humble and contrite spirit. Do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Upon these things hang all the law and the commandments, Jesus said. By this they will know that you are essentially believers and Christians when they see your love for the brethren. Unfortunately, it's hard to have love for the brethren because there's hardly seems like there's hardly any around. <laughs> I mean, I'm talking about when you... I'm not saying the people aren't listening to this aren't, but I mean, just out in general public. And you, you look at the deceptions that so many people are under and they have no love for the truth and they have no interest in coming out of this stuff. I don't understand it. So yeah, he believed. He believed that uh, if they're sincere in their religion, the Hindus they'll they'll be accepted by God. Sure. Well, the Bible certainly says not. Ephesians chapter two tells us the condition of every person outside of regenerating faith in Jesus Christ. He is dead in trespasses and sins. He is controlled by and living according to the workings of the devil. He's a child of disobedience. He's dominated by the flesh. He's a child of wrath. He's without Christ. He's an alien and stranger from the covenant of God. He's without hope. He's without God in the world. And he is far off from God. That's what the Bible says about him. Oh, but we can't say that. That wouldn't be politically correct. We may lose converts. If you've got converts like that, let me tell you something. They're not converted. You're just taking them to hell along with yourself. And their blood is going to be required at your hands. Whew. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ has already settled this matter long ago. Long before the, even the pennings of, of Ephesians. In his conversation with Nicodemus, the Lord said categorically, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. John 33. 
Nicodemus was a very sincere religious Jew. And if any category of person could have gone to heaven without being born again, it would have been people like him. But Christ said it won't happen. Furthermore, Lewis is teaching that salvation can be achieved by works and religious seeking. And that, and that is another false gospel that is cursed of God in the book of Galatians. Where it says, I marvel that ye be so soon removed from him that called you under the grace of Christ. Remember, you see, by grace, through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So I marvel that ye be so soon removed from him that called you under the grace of Christ, unto another gospel. This whole thing with C.S. Lewis boils down to him espousing another gospel. Which is not another but there are some that trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. Isn't that what we're talking about today? An absolute perversion of the gospel of Christ? But though, though we, or an angel from heaven, look, they say here, but though we, and I say that about myself, if I, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you, then that which ye have preached unto you, let him be accursed. They said, let myself be accursed if I preach another gospel to you, which you have not heard from heaven. I would say that to myself. Don't follow men. Follow the word of God. That was from Galatians 1, 6-8. There is only one true gospel, and that is salvation through repentance and faith in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, His death, burial, and resurrection. But there are many false gospels, and all claim that a man can be saved in some sense by good works. Every, there's only two religions, I've said this before, there's all your works-based isms, Catholicism, Hinduism, Buddhism, you know, Mormonism, all these isms, you can say through good works, and then there's Bible-believing Christianity, which says you're saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Here's another article, um, entitled, C.S. Lewis the Heretic. <clears throat> Lewis was an unwilling convert, you may picture me alone in a room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted for even a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting reproach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. This is from his own writings. This is C.S. Lewis saying this. He's saying, I earnestly desired not to meet. Then he goes on to say, That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. Thank you. In 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God. Wow. Thanks, C.S. And knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Claiming to believe in God God is not a conversion, number one. <laughs> a lot of people do that. James 2.19 says, Thou believest that there is one God. Thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. Who cares? about the, the, the devils believe. Satan believes in God. Satan believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't get you to heaven. Claiming to believe in God is not conversion. What's more, anyone who has ever been truly born again knows that emotions that come to mind are not dejection and reluctance to having do so. I know it wasn't for me when I found out about this, when I found out about salvation, when I read that book I mentioned earlier, 
I, I can't relate to what he's saying here at all. It doesn't make any sense. And I think if you talk to the vast majority of most Christians, they're going to say that they're the most reluctant convert. You know what? You don't come to Christ that way. The Bible says unless you come to him as a little child, you know what I mean? You will not see the kingdom of God. You come to him meekly and humbly and thanking him for the salvation that he's given you, not as a dejected and reluctant convert. Oh man, all my fun's all over now. I can't live like the devil anymore. You're not saved, if that's your attitude. No, I'm sorry. That doesn't work that way. And unless the Holy Spirit draw the man, he's not saved anyway. That's why, you know, seek him while he may be found. There's many people that have been on their deathbed, that had planned on getting saved on their deathbed, and they found when the time came, they couldn't get saved. Because the Spirit was not there anymore to draw them. They had their chance. You don't just get saved when you want to get saved. You get saved when the Holy Spirit is there to draw you. But you remember, everybody wants their bro cream religion. A little dabble do you. They want to have it their way. Burger King religion. Have it your way and have it now. Doesn't work that way with the Lord. Be thankful that you have an opportunity to get saved. Okay, so this next part is that Lewis, C.S. Lewis believed in the power and use of spells, like witchcraft spells. Lewis said that a spell is needed to overcome enchantment of the world. You and I have the need, of, this is a quote, you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantments of the world of worldliness, as though all of his writings were indoctrinating you into worldliness. The world of occult fantasy. If that's not the definition of worldliness, I don't know what is. So we need the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the enchantment, the evil enchantment of worldliness. So we need a good spell to wake us from the evil. See, it's about good and bad witchcraft. God is not in the business of providing spells to break enchantments. This quote shows where much of Narnia's doctrine comes from. First uh, John 5, 4 says, For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. See, faith is what overcomes things. Putting on the full armor of God. Okay? Not going out and getting some spell so we can break the evil enchantments on our life. Lewis also said, um, many, uh, many sincere unbelievers may go to heaven. Well, we've already read those quotes. If the good pagans are going to heaven anyway, why in the world are we spending our time and money and sending out missionaries and preaching the gospel? Speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible clearly tells us that there is only one way to be saved. Acts 4.12 says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Uh, Lewis also said we're saved according to works. This is a quote from one of his books page 62 and 63. Um, <clears throat> there are three things that spread the Christ life to us. This is what he says. Baptism, belief, and that mysterious action which different Christians call by different names. The Holy Communion, the Mass, or the Lord's Supper. End of quote. Now, Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration, and by the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Added to this, he says that in the next life, 
quote, there will be every occasion for being the sort of people that we can become only as a result of doing such acts here. End of quote. So he literally believed that the only way to be, that was the only way to be saved. In other words, we're, um, In other words, when he says this quote, there will be every occasion for being the sort of people that we can become only as a result of doing such acts here. The such acts that he was talking about were the act of baptism, belief, and the mysterious action of either the Holy Communion, the Mass, or the Lord's Supper. Which, um, when we talk about Holy Communion and the Mass, we're talking about the um, typical reference is is into um, the... uh, uh, Catholicism and Orthodox religions, where they—that's what they actually call it. Okay, which in, in particularly the Catholic religion, they believe in the doctrine of transubstantiation, where the wine and the wafer are actually transformed into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, and this is how they get their sins atoned for every week when they go and they take mass. Okay, because by transforming it, supposedly the priest has this power to, to into the literal body and blood of Jesus Christ, then they're atoning for their sins every week over and over and over again. So therefore they can go out and live like the devil the other six days, come back, do their auricular confession, do their uh, seven sacraments, take the Mass, and feel all good about themselves. They've got their dose of real cream religion, and everybody comes away happy. The Catholic Church gets richer. They maintain the control over the duped masses, and the and the and the Catholics feel like, oh, we've we you know we're clean now for this week. Let's go live like the devil in between. That's what that's what it's all about. So he literally believed this was the only way to be saved. Lewis was also wiping out the difference between the Lord's Supper of true Christians and the Roman Catholic Mass. He was just lumping them all together. Okay? He lumps all beliefs about it into one and claims it is part of salvation as well as calling Roman Catholics Christians. Lewis did not consider himself a new man. A new creature in Christ. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He believed that there is a purgatory after death in which we will be purified. Where does he say that? Um, Well, he says it on page 108, 172, 174, 175, and 182. This particular book we're quoting from. Um, He says, Whatever inconceivable purification whatever inconceivable purification it may cost you after death. So we, we pay for our sins after death. Now, 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says, Therefore we are always confident, knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, we are, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So once you're absent from the body, you're present with the Lord. You don't go to, you're either, if you're born again Christian, you are at least. You know, if you're not, you go to hell. If you are, you go to heaven. That's it. There's only two options. Lewis was a humanist, seeing man as being potentially good. This is a quote from him. He says, safety and happiness can only come, he said it can only come, 
from individuals, classes, and nations being honest and fair and kind to each other. Sounds like the United Nations. The study we just did, that's what they're saying too. we got to all come together as one big happy family, guys. Whereas Psalm 4.8 says, I will look, both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. See, God, though, he's, he's our strong tower. Under, under, the, under the shelter of his wings will we make a refuge while these calamities be overpassed. But he's saying safety and happiness can come from individuals and classes and nations. Being honest and fair and kind to each other. Well, if they were true born-again Christian nations, yes, I, I could... But again, the safety still comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't want to ever give man or a nation or a class of people the credit or the glory for something that only belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. Proverbs 21.31 says, The horse is prepared for the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. Psalm 118.8 says, It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Psalm 144.15 Happy is that people that is in such a case, yea, happy is that people whose God is the Lord. This is from his book, Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. He says, C.S. Lewis, ye must be born again. Till then, we have the duty, morality, the law, a schoolmaster, as St. Paul says. But the school days, please God, are to be numbered. Now notice what he said. You must be born again. And then he says, till then. What does that imply? That implies we're not born again in this life. We're born again in some hereafter thing. Till then, we have the duty, the morality, the law. Oh, so now we have the law. As the Bible talks about, the schoolmaster, the law. Okay, as St. Paul says. This is exactly what the Pope believes. He said that on page 115 of Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. This is exactly what the Pope believes, that we are being born again. And that, you know, everything's perfected, but actually in the afterlife. Colossians, Colossians 2.10 says, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. And then he goes on to say, Another quote from C.S. Lewis. I do not at all regard mystical experience as an illusion. Well, I would believe that after reading what we read. He says, I think it shows that there is a way to go before death out of what may be called this world. Now this, okay, so he's saying he doesn't regard mystical experience as an illusion. But I think it, meaning this mystical experience shows that there is a way to go before death. In other words, we need to go the road of mystical experience before death. Out of what may be called this world. What Lewis here describes sounds like the modern day out of body experiences. It smacks of seducing spirits. Which the Bible talks about in 1 Timothy 4.1. We've already quoted that verse. Colossians 2.18 says, Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshipping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. That is an absolute total verse describing C.S. Lewis. He's beguiling people. Did you know Lewis prayed for the dead? Oh yeah. This is a quote from C.S. Lewis. 
page 107 of Letters to Malcolm, chiefly on prayer. Of course I pray for the dead. The action is so spontaneous, so all-inevitable, that only the most compulsive theological case against it would deter me. And I hardly know how the rest of my prayers would survive if those prayers for the dead were forbidden. Is this... I mean, this is mind-boggling, these quotes. That's what he said. Of course he prays for the dead. 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says, But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. What sense in there is praying, is there praying for the dead? They're... They're... they're destiny is sealed. Once you die, your destiny is sealed. Okay? It's heaven or hell. The rewards you're going to receive in heaven are sealed too. Okay? It's based on what you did in this life. But, you know, they these people don't have that concept. Also note that C.S. Lewis thinks he could not even continue praying if he was forbidden to pray for the dead. Whew. He also says that there's a purgatory, which we all must suffer after death. Well, so do the Catholics. He says, quote, I believe in purgatory. While he claimed to not believe in the extreme suffering that Roman Church taught in earlier years, he held that our souls demand purgatory, end of quote, in order to make them pure enough for heaven. See, the blood of Jesus Christ wasn't enough for C.S. Lewis and all these other heretics and all these other religions. The blood of Jesus Christ is not enough even though Jesus Christ said when he was on the cross, it is finished. No, it's not enough for them. They've got to be able to do it through their own wicked works. And they never will. This idea is no doubt based on his heresy of salvation being a continuing and incomplete thing. He does, quote, assume that the process of purification will normally involve suffering. He likens it to being given a mouth rinse after a tooth is pulled. This, he says, will be purgatory. The mouth, the mouth rinse after the tooth being pulled. The rinsing may take longer than I can now imagine. The taste of this may be more fiery and astringent than my present sensibility could endure. End of quote. Again, see the above scriptures that we've already talked about. 2 Corinthians 5, 6, and 8. Uh, also Romans eight seventeen says, And if children then heirs... Heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with Him. Which is also an earmark of a Christian. Well, I'm not suffering, I'm just warming some pew in some church somewhere, and getting some cotton candy every week. I'm not suffering. Well, you probably aren't even saved. Okay, and granted, there's Christians that suffer different degrees around the earth. A Christian in China that's fearing for his life every day, and may have his life taken from him, is a far cry from somebody like that's in America like I am, who really doesn't have any concept of that. And I admit that. I don't. I may in the very near future, but right now I don't. But it says, If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. See, suffering is part of the Christian experience. In this life, not in some purgatory thereafter. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 
So we suffer with Christ. He did his suffering on earth, not in heaven. Our suffering is done on earth at this present time. Not in purgatory, in the hereafter. Okay? Here's more. This is from Letters of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis believed that purgatory was a process by which the work of redemption continues and, per, and, first, and first perhaps begins to be noticeable after death. That was from page 246 and 47 of, 247 of that book. Revelation 5.9 says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, and for thou wast slain, and hast redeemed us to God by thy blood. Remember, by thy blood is how we get redeemed. Redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. Redemption is through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. No purgatory enters into it. The price is paid in full. Hebrews 5 or 7.25 says, Therefore he is able to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Praise the Lord. Man, that's awesome. He also believed on page um, one uh, ten and one twelve in this book, he he uh, uh, reiterated that there is error in the Bible. We've already seen that he does. He believed that the Book of Job was non-historical, that the Genesis account was um, pagan mythology. He believed that the Gospels were essentially a true myth, quote a true myth, whatever that means. Whereas the Bible says in Proverbs thirty-five, every word of God is pure. And he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. He said, C.S. Lewis said, the Bible carries the word of God, but it is human material. Which is what a lot of people that want to justify their positions say. Oh no, the God's just written by fallible men. And, and, and it's, oh granted, I'm not saying they were perfect. But let's see what the Bible says about this. Okay, 2 Timothy 3.16 3, says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God. 2 Peter one twenty one says, For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. See, it was about the Holy Ghost working through them. It wasn't about some guy making up some story and putting it in the Bible. He believed that Plato was a theological genius. C.S. Lewis says that Plato was an overwhelming theological genius in page 80 of that book that I just quoted. This fits with his perverted ideas of paganism being the childhood of religion. Paganism is the childhood of religion, he believed. And Christ was here to fulfill paganism. Man! He obviously could not tell God's truth from Satan's lies if his soul depended on it. Proverbs 15.2 says, The tongue of the wise useth knowledge aright, but the mouth of the fools pour out foolishness. That's all. His, his writings were foolishness. This is from the Screwtape Letters. He said, To be truly human, you must participate in the Tao. He said of the Tao, which is, the, which is from Chinese mysticism, like the Tao would be like the yin-yang, fire and ice, you know, that whole concept there. He said, quote, the Tao is the concrete reality in which to participate in is to be truly human. Now there's whole articles written about this on just this one subject. On almost a lot of the things that I'm saying here, there's whole things that other authors have written just expounding on each one. I'm just giving you the high points today. 
He says modern science is mostly based on the love of truth. Yeah, just like evolution. Well, which he agreed with that too, so. Here's a quote, another quote from good old C.S. No doubt those who really founded modern science were usually those whose love of truth exceeded their love of power. Wow. Huh. As we all know too well, modern science is all too often in opposition with the truth of God and His Word. 1 Timothy 6.20 nails it. It says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Isn't that an absolute accurate thing of what we're describing here? Grace be with them. Amen. Colossians 2.8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Well, I'm telling you what, C.S. Lewis spoiled a lot of people. After the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Other heresies of C.S. Lewis. Perhaps the most spiritually indicting and revealing statement that Lewis ever made is quoted in C.S. Lewis, a biography by Roger Lynch and Green on page 276. Lewis and his wife were on a trip. When Lewis stated, quote, I had some ado to, pre to prevent, this is, the, this is this lady, he was totally, she was totally unbiblically divorced, and he totally unbiblically married her. So, him and Joy were on this trip in, in Greece, and Lewis said, quote, I had some ado to prevent Joy and myself from relapsing into paganism in Attica. But remember this, to relapse into something means you've done it before. Like a drug addict lapses, or relapses, or an alcoholic relapses, okay? Well, I had some ado to present joy, pre prevent joy myself from relapsing into paganism in Attica. In other words, it was all we could do to prevent from relapsing into paganism in this Greece town. At Daphne... It was hard not to pray to Apollo, the healer. <laughs> but somehow, one didn't feel it would have been very wrong. Would have only been would have only been addressing Christ's subspecies, Apollonius. Is this rank blasphemy at, at the highest order? I I think so. In other words. He didn't really feel it would, be, it would be wrong to pray to Apollo the healer. Why? Because it would have only been addressing, essentially, Jesus Christ's subspecies. Apollonius. That's a quote! Dear reader, this man could not have possibly been saved. Anyone that could even entertain the idea that Apollos, the pagan sun deity, was a lower form of Christ and could be prayed to as such, could not possibly know the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior. Well, amen. The Christ that C.S. Lewis worshipped was not the Christ of the Holy Scriptures, but some pagan deity that conjured up out of his myth-laden imagination. Exodus 34.14 says, For thou shalt worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a, and is a jealous god. Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my God will I not give, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Again, this guy, you know, he didn't know the Bible whatsoever. Or if he did, he was just a devil. 
just just totally skirting the issues. He didn't follow the Bible at all. Romans 1.20 says, For the invisible things of him, of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so they so that they are without excuse. C.S. Lewis was absolutely without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were, that, were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. It didn't sound like C.S. Lewis was really thankful when he supposedly got converted. The most reluctant and, you know, what it was, a downtrodden convert in England? Did it sound like he was thankful for his salvation? It did it to me. <laughs> he never got saved. <sighs> but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. This whole verse so fits this guy, it's not even funny. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like unto corruptible man, like Apollo. And to Bert, even though he was more of a fallen angel, but it's, his image would be like unto a corruptible man. And to birds and to forfeited beasts and creeping things, wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 2 Peter 2.3 says, And through covetous, covetousness shall they, meaning these false teachers, with feigned words, false words, make merchandise of you. That's how they make their living. All these Christian authors and all these bookstores that they sell, putting out this watered-down, unbiblical, or half-baked truth, not preaching the truth, they are making merchandise of you. That's how they're making their living. Because the love of money is the root of all evil. How are they doing it? Through feigned false words. Because they're coveting your money. And they're coveting the power and, the, and whatever things that they're trying to get. You know, they're trying to get, you know, power and glory in this lifetime. Through their own words. Then it goes on to say, Whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their, damna their damnation slumbereth not. Now, let's talk about this Narnia movie. Narnia, within 15 minutes of the opening scene, viewers of the Walt Disney movie Narnia, okay, we have C.S. Lewis to thank for this movie, C.S., uh, within 15 minutes of the opening scene of the Walt Disney movie Narnia are face-to-face -face with Pan, the pagan fertility god which wicked witches worship and adore worldwide. The image, now I'm looking at images here, and I, I'll have this in the PDF file, but the image to the left pictures Pan, the pagan sex god. The image to the right is the statue of the character Mr. Tuminus in Narnia. Let me tell you something, they're identical. They're identical. But all they do is they just put a little different name on them. Pan is deceitfully renamed to Tunamis in the movie, but anyone who is familiar with Satanism and witchcraft can instantly, instantly recognize Pan, the evil, sexually perverted god. In fact, the one in, in the movie Narnia looks even more evil than the other one. Despite the declaration of his death, however, Pan is widely worshipped by neo-pagans and Wiccans today, where he is considered a powerful god and an archetype of male virility and sexuality. 
In lieu of such evidence, how can any professed Christian endorse such a demonic movie as Narnia? Yet Christians all across America are praising this evil movie, which promotes Satan. Look at the photo of Tunamis to the left. Please notice the devil's horns coming out of his head. Now this is the actual from, a picture from the actual movie. He's got horns coming out of his hair. He's got these goat ears that coming out to the side. Pan looks like a combination of a goat and a human. Okay? Please notice the devil's horns coming out of his head. In Narnia, Tunamis is one of the good characters. Do you think this is all just a coincidence? No, my friend, Satan is working relentlessly to poison the minds of our children. Tragically, the average Christian parent is so woefully ignorant of the word of God, just like C.S. Lewis, that they are easy prey for satanic deceptions. This is why so many professed Christians see no harm with Harry Potter. Folks, first, first Samuel... 1523 declares witchcraft as a sin. In the Old Testament, it was punishable by death. What if Harry Potter were going to school, to the school of immoral sex or, 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 or a cold-blooded murderer? Don't you have the biblical teaching that witchcraft is a wicked sin? Worldly believers have become desensitized by rock and roll, late night shows, and television, etc. It is tragic that sin can no longer be recognized as sin, because the discernment is almost virtually gone among Christians. Self-professed. And I'm, again, the people listening to these, I'm not indicting you, okay, unless you're part of this and you believe this, okay? But most People that call themselves Christians, you know, they don't have a clue about any of this. Nor would they want to know. Nor would they want to know. They'd have no love for the truth. That's dangerous. Really, really dangerous. Because according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, God is going to send a strong delusion that they will all believe a lie. Because they received not the love of the truth. That's the reason he's sending it. Because they didn't receive the love of the truth. Now, I know the truth of Jesus Christ is the main truth, but there's other truth like this. Truth is truth, man. And we're destroyed for lack of knowledge. And the Bible says, Because thou hast rejected knowledge, I will also reject thee. And thou shalt be a priest to me no more. And I will also reject your children. Hosea 4, 6. Very important what knowledge we're rejecting, especially in today's day and age. Now, let's talk about this Narnia movie and pedophilia. Lucy Perversi's character in the movie, and Mr. Tunamis, who is Pan, the sex god, okay? Lucy Percy's character, Mr. Tunamis' character, and their subtle interaction give the impression of a pedophile trying to lure a little girl into his house. The whole scene is creepy, and the spirit of pedophilia is definitely at work in this movie. And I didn't see this movie, but this is a, this is from a review. Tunamis, who is Pan, the sex god, represents the devil trying to seduce a young girl. But he's played as the good devil. He's played as the good fawn in this movie. The fact that Tunamis is modeled after Pan, who is one of the most sexually perverted gods in witchcraft, doesn't bode well for Walt Disney's intentions. Furthermore, Tunamis and his flute have magical powers, just like the devil. Tunamis puts the little girl to sleep with his music. The next scene shows the little girl waking up and Tunamis crying, claiming that he has done something very bad. Okay, so let, let's say that again. Tunamis puts the little girl to sleep with his flute music. Isn't that how Pan was it? Was it? Wasn't that how? Isn't that how Pan lured everybody? 
through his music. This is why Pan is also associated with rock and roll. Okay, and, and evil music. Because he's the Pied Piper. You know where it talks about in Stairway to Heaven, the Pied Piper will call? He's talking, and that's, that's the number one song ever in rock and roll. Stairway to Heaven. Talks about the Pied Piper. If you play that, that song backwards, there's all kind of black backmasking messages in there about Satan. My sweet Satan and all these other things, it says. Okay, Pan is the Pied Piper. How did the Pied Piper lure? Through music. Particularly with his flute. Well, that's what he's doing in this movie. Tunimus puts the little girl to sleep with his music, his flute. The next scene shows the little girl waking up and Tunimus crying. Claiming that he's done something very bad. Is this sick? Well, that's the, that's the, uh, that's the um, message they're trying to send. The subtle implication is that he sexually molested her. Remember, folks, Pan is a demonic pagan god of sexual perversion and rape. In fact, most images of Pan... Well, I'm not even going to say that part. But anyway, uh, you got to be careful what you talk about with this. But, it, you know... Furthermore, the movie encourages little girls to trust strangers. In today's world, Tunimus would be considered a pedophile. No man with a brain would bring a small little girl... would bring a strange little girl alone into his home. The whole atmosphere created by the scene is one of pedophilia. Also notice how innocent and precious Walt Disney makes the little girl look. As if the best is prepared for Satan's delight. A satanic sacrifice. The whole concept of Pan being a good character in Narnia is satanic in itself. Pan is widely recognized by witches and Satanists as a god of fertility. An absolute pervert who can't get enough of, of sex. Pan is a pedophile. And he's got another article in here. And I'm going to provide you with all the links when I put this in PDF. It's called Further Into the Depths of Satan Concerning the Perversions of Narnia. So again, thank you C.S. Lewis for all that you've done for us. All of your influence in, 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 which continues to this day. You are being used mightily as you roast in hell right now as a tool of Satan. And there's, and there's souls that are plunging into hell right now because of you, C.S. Lewis. We're to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but to rather reprove them. That's what we're doing today. We're earnestly contending for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. We're marking them which caused division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned. That's what we're doing today. Okay? And I'm going to go ahead and that's the, the end of this teaching for today. Again, next week we're going to be talking more, getting more into Tolkien. Which you, if you talk about C.S. Lewis, you've got to talk about Tolkien. And we're going to be getting, the stuff that we're going to be getting in the next week is even more overt. I'm not going to say it's, it's inappropriate, but it's more overt into their occult ties. Who were the people that they hung out with? Who were their friends? A man is known by the, the company of the friends that he keeps. Well, we're going to see if they were hanging out with, with good, solid Christians. We're going to see the type of sat sat satanic people that they kept company with and felt comfortable around. I mean, if you're a born-again Christian... How can you feel comfortable hanging out with a bunch of basically Satanists or pagans? Well, by their fruits you shall know them. So I'll go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, Lord. I do pray, God, that um, these studies would expose the evil, Lord God, in the name of Jesus Christ. And I, I just pray that these people that are caught up in these heresies, I pray to God that their eyes would be opened. 
that their ears would be open, that their hearts would receive the truth in the name of Jesus Christ. Lord God in heaven, we quoted from his own writings. These are things that can be easily verified. I pray to God that you shake and wake the remnant up, and that those that are not saved, that they would come out of these things, that they be not partakers of these plagues in the name of Jesus Christ, and that they would get saved, and that your name would be glorified through these things. For it's a will that not one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. That you would forgive us, Lord God, for any and all sins that we have committed, in any way, shape, or form. That the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord. That you would cleanse us from presumptuous sins and secret faults, that they would not have dominion over us in the name of Jesus Christ. And that, Lord God, you would deal with the wicked in the name of Jesus Christ. And if they were going to persist and continue in their wickedness, Lord God, that they would be brought low that you would have the heathen in derision in the name of Jesus Christ, and at the same time that your protective hand would be upon the body of Christ, that your angels would encamp around about us, Lord God, and that you would use us mightily, Lord God, for thy glory, and for the sake of the souls that need to be saved. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we humbly beseech thee. Amen.